0: Hi, guys. We have an exciting merchandise update for you.
1: We have a store opening in August with some super cool items that we're excited about.
0: And we're going to get you details as soon as possible. Sometime in August, it's going to be opening. And as soon as we know the exact date, we'll let you know here and on social media. So be sure to keep an ear open. Squee!
1: I'm Lauren and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And
0: you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast.
1: What up, what up? The
0: episode.
1: We are back with Elena to continue our case from last week. If you haven't heard last week's episode, pause here and go and listen to that one first. Just as a reminder, all cases are presented anonymously, and the names and identifying information of the patients, clients, and in some cases, veterinarians have been changed. Welcome, Elena.
2: Hello, hello. So where we left off last week is our patient was diagnosed with urate stones. This led to further testing to determine the cause of the stones, and the patient was found to have elevated bile acids, so concern for possible PSS. So he was referring to an internal medicine specialist for further evaluation of that liver.
0: In the last episode, we reviewed the potential causes for urate, urolith formation in dogs. When the formation of urate stones is related to liver disease, a portosystemic shunt is the most common underlying cause, especially in a young dog like this one. While the presence of urate stones and elevated bile acids doesn't confirm the presence of a liver shunt, it would move it to the top position
1: on our differential diagnosis list in this case. So this patient has abnormal bile acids. Why are bile acids important and how are they measured?
0: Okay, so bile acids are secreted by the liver into the bile and the bile goes into the GI tract and it is reabsorbed in the ileum and then it's cleared from portal circulation on the first pass through the liver. Bile acids that are present in the peripheral blood represent the spillover from enterohepatic circulation, so essentially the leftovers that couldn't be cleared by the liver. More bile acids are secreted after a high-fat meal, but if the liver works well, even after a high-fat meal, the bile acids in the peripheral blood should stay relatively low. But if the liver's not working that well, the bile acid concentrations in the peripheral blood will be much higher than normal, particularly after a fatty meal. Classically, a pre- and postprandial bile acids test is used to screen for liver function issues. Ideally, bile acids are measured fasting and then at two hours after a small fat-containing meal. Dogs with liver disease typically have normal or elevated preprandial bile acids and then markedly elevated postprandial bile acids. You may hear about resting bile acids, which is simply just like a single measurement. And unfortunately, this is not super useful for evaluating liver function unless that one measurement is like super duper high. Usually, a pre and postprandial bile acids test is the way to go because it gives us the most information.
1: So, what does an elevated postprandial bile acids measurement tell us? So, while
0: other issues can cause elevated bile acids, liver dysfunction is the most common cause of elevated bile acids. Liver issues that can cause elevated bile acids include cirrhosis, so like scarring of the liver, a portosystemic vascular anomaly like portosystemic shunt, which we've mentioned several times already, severe hepatocellular disease, so real bad liver disease of any cause, and then post-hepatic obstruction. Now, it's important to remember that elevated bile acids concentrations do not diagnose the presence of a portosystemic shunt. Often dogs with portosystemic shunt do have severely elevated pre and post values though. But even that is not completely diagnostic. So it, it can be like consistent with a portosystemic shunt if they're real high and real high, like in this particular case, but it doesn't fully diagnose it yet. Bile acids don't even diagnose liver dysfunction conclusively because some other causes of bile acids elevation exist. Those include things like obstructive pancreatitis, alteration in GI mobility, steroid administration, or possibly Cushing's disease, hemolysis and lipemia can impact the type of assay that's used to test bile acids. Uh, and and if I remember correctly, hemolysis actually artificially decreases the bile acids, and lipemia artificially increases it. And then if the patient is on certain medications like Ursidiol. And then I also found at least one reference that said that treatment with anti-seizure medications can actually impact the measurement of bile acids as well. It's also important to remember that normal bile acid concentrations don't completely rule out liver disease either. Abnormal bile acids are considered an indicator for further
1: workup of the liver, but not any sort of a definitive diagnosis. So based on the case presentation so far, A young dog with urate stones and elevated bylaces, a PSS would be the top differential. So what is a portosystemic shunt?
2: A portosystemic shunt, also known as PSS, is a circulatory defect from the portal vein to other connecting circulatory branches, directing blood to bypass the liver. Most commonly, this is a congenital defect, meaning present at birth. However, PSS can also be acquired, which means they can develop it over time. The portal vein is a main source of blood to the liver from the gastrointestinal system, pancreas, and spleen. Portal blood carries important hormones like insulin and glucagon, as well as intestinally derived toxins and bacterial products to the liver. During fetal development, multiple shunts help direct blood flow to vital organs, such as ductus arteriosus. I hope I said that right.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sounds right to me.
2: Okay, cool. We're gonna go <laughs> yeah, with it. I think that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. that directs blood from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. Foramen ovale, or oval, depends it's, on where you're from.
0: I think it's ovale, but but again, that might be the southern pronunciation. Yeah,
2: I've heard it both <laughs> ways. Okay, ovale. <laughs> yeah, the foramen ovale. <laughs> <O-va-ally>. Yeah. <laughs> So this one allows blood flow between the left and the right atrium of the heart. And lastly, the ductus venosus, that directs blood from the umbilical vein to the inferior vena cava, bypassing the portal vein and the liver. So typically at birth, when oxygen fills the lungs, these shunts close. A congenital PSS will form if the ductus venosus fails to close or a blood vessel decides to form abnormally outside the liver after the ductus venosus closes.
0: And a lot of portosystemic shunts are congenital, like 80%. Congenital PSS usually occurs with a single vessel and that can be extrahepatic meaning outside of the hepatic parenchyma or intrahepatic meaning inside of the hepatic parenchyma. Extrahepatic hepatic are most common in toy and small breed dogs. Uh, these extra-hepatic shunts are hereditary in the Yorkie and Cairn Terrier. And additional breeds that are predisposed include the Maltese Terrier, Silky Terrier, Miniature Schnauzer, which is our type of dog in this case, Miniature and Toy Poodles, Lassa Apso, Bichon Frise, Shizu, Havanese... <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> fizz gig um, <laughs> the dandy denmont terrier which again I've never heard of that dog uh, and the pekinese intrahepatic shunt so inside the liver is more commonly diagnosed in large breed dogs such as the german shepherd golden retriever doberman pincher <gasps> <laughs> damn it jj why are all of your dogs
1: causing this problem Because
0: I'm a technician. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's 100% accurate. Uh, Labrador Retriever, Irish Setter, Samoyed, Old English Sheepdog, and Irish Wolfhound. And medium-sized breeds, including the Australian Shepherd and Australian Cattle Dog. There is no sex predisposition documented for the development of PSS. Now, acquired portosystemic shunts occur in about 20% of cases. Typically, they develop secondary to chronic portal vein hypertension, as this elevated pressure causes those little vestigial remnants of fetal blood vessels to open up and start flowing again when they're not supposed to. Acquired shunts usually consist of multiple extrahepatic vessels, so multiple vessels outside of the liver. They're usually tortuous, which is also a really fantastic word, but like they're all curvy and weird and they kind of sit up next to the kidney a lot of the time. And common causes of this issue would be hepatic cirrhosis, portal vein hypoplasia, so a small portal vein with portal hypertension resulting from that small just size and diameter of the vein, and then hepatic arteriovenous malformations. Now when a portosystemic shunt is present, This blood bypasses circulation in the liver, and then it directly enters the systemic circulation. Trophic hormones are not available to encourage liver growth, which leads to poor liver development. That's why they tend to be kind of on the small side liver-wise. And even in dogs that have acquired shunts, the liver can actually atrophy because it's not receiving these important hormones. They might also experience things like deficiencies in protein production, abnormal fat and protein metabolism, and then reticuloendothelial dysfunction. Both endogenous and exogenous toxins that the liver would normally sort of metabolize or eliminate uh, start to accumulate in the body instead. And clinical diseases associated with the substances within the
1: blood that have bypassed the liver and are in circulation instead. So with our top differential of PSS in mind, We need to update our diagnostics wish list. What tests should be considered? So some abnormalities can be
0: detected on a routine chemistry profile. Things like elevated liver enzymes, ALT, ALP, AST, GGT. Uh, But PSS patients might have normal liver enzymes too. The serum bilirubin is usually normal in patients with PSS, but not always. They may have low BUN and low albumin. They might also have low cholesterol, and hypoglycemia or low blood sugar is common in congenital cases of portosystemic shunts. On a urinalysis, in more than 50% of patients with PSS, you're going to see a low urine concentration, so either hyposthenuria or isosthenuria. You might see an elevation in urine bilirubin. Now, it's important to remember that small amounts of bilirubin can be normal in highly concentrated urine, but if you're seeing a really dilute urine and like three or four plus bilirubin, like that's not typical. You can also look at urine ammonium urate or biurate crystals. Um, so the type of stone that we have in our dog, uh, if you can identify those crystals in the urinalysis, then you need to look for something like a PSS. And then elevated urine bile acids are also present sometimes. Coagulation tests can be affected. Most pets with PSS have normal coag profiles, but occasionally there will be elevations in the PT or the PTT. You could check blood ammonia levels. Uh, They're going to be elevated, but you can't definitively diagnose a PSS this way. You can use plasma protein C. Elevations will help differentiate something like microvascular dysplasia from a PSS because plasma protein C will be low in patients with portosystemic shunts. You can do cytology or take biopsies of the liver, and then you can do imaging. So uh, you can do radiographs, take ultrasound. You could do CT or nuclear scintigraphy. Radiographs won't really allow you to visualize a shunt, but you might see a small liver. And we'll talk a little bit about the other imaging modalities here in a few minutes sometimes exploratory surgery has been used for diagnosis of a portosystemic shunt. Uh, I would imagine, though, with the imaging we have now, that this would be much less common than it used to be. For this patient specifically? What would we do? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there are a lot of options to consider for this patient, especially if it hasn't been done already. I think it would be a good idea just to start with a minimum database and clotting times. Those are relatively inexpensive, non-invasive. They don't require anesthesia. They can be done in almost any hospital. And they give us important information about how well the pet might tolerate a surgical procedure in the future, which would be really good information to have if we suspect a PSS. Also imaging. Uh, We want to discuss the options with owners. Uh, So x-rays, can't detect a PSS, um, just the associated liver changes. Occasionally, you can find a shunt with ultrasound. Uh, But you have to have like a super patient and ultra talented ultrasonographer, which is (laughs) not me. A lot of the time, though, it can still even be missed. So you can take like the most famous veterinary uh, radiology specialist and hand them an ultrasound. And it's still not 100 percent yield there.
2: Like the internist that I work for. It's like if I'm going to be looking for a port of systemic shunt, I'm just going to go straight to CT Mm -hmm. because if we're going to be doing an ultrasound or trying to find it through ultrasound and it's so particular, you're sedating the patient anyways, might as well just throw it in the CT tube, to be honest.
0: Sure. I mean, if the client's are up for it these days, higher level imaging is just it's everywhere. I mean, you can get a CT locally most places now before like even when I graduated vet school living in Huntsville, getting a CT scan would be like a three-hour drive to a teaching hospital, you know, like, but now there's so many options to get a CT. Like, I can think of, I mean, two places within 30 to 45 minutes of here, and then, I don't know, 10 options within out an hour or two, <laughs> you know, it's much different.
2: Yeah, and with veterinary prices nowadays, um, for in cupcake terminology four to five cupcakes more you could do a ct scan have better images have more information that is involved with it in my opinion so yeah
0: yeah i mean why why spend the money on ultrasound if it's not like a guarantee when you have such a much higher yield with ct Absolutely. i think that's very reasonable yeah oh uh, yeah better bang for your buck CTA, which is computed tomographic angiography, is currently considered the imaging modality of choice for diagnosing PSS. Uh, And it does require anesthesia, however, you know, but, you know, that's what I would do.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a short anesthetic procedure, and they go home the same day. So, really easy, real simple.
0: I mean, why not?
2: So, going back to our patient... The internist ordered a chemistry profile, some blood work. Um, so the chemistry profile um, showed elevated ALT and alkaline phosphatase. Uh, there were no other abnormalities on CBC. They did do a COAG profile, so PT and PTT, and they had some mild elevations in that. Your analysis showed some elevated bilirubin, so 3 plus on it. And the specific gravity, if I remember correctly, it's ten twelve.
0: Okay, so patient. dilute urine mm-hmm. with Billy bilirubin. That's significant.
2: Yep, yep. yep. The uh, owners were gung-ho for a CT scan. So that's okay. exactly what they did. They performed yes. a CT scan. It showed what we call microhepatica. I love that word, yeah. microhepatica. That
0: is a good word. <laughs>
2: it is a good word.
0: It sounds like something that you would use to, like, in, I don't know, film technology like let me it. use my microhepatica to film that scene
2: exactly and i know <laughs> absolutely nothing about it nothing but it makes me sounds really smart and i like it, it. does
0: <laughs> microhepatica
2: <laughs> microhepatica anyway so microhepatica means a, a small liver and the radiologist read it and the radiologist said that uh he found a single extrahepatic portosystemic shunt this particular shunt was a spleno Splenophrinic. Splenofre, there we go. That one. <laughs> <laughs> it just means it's the type of shunt where the location is. And some cystic cal- calculi, or basically he had stones again. Mm-hmm. I think at this point when they saw the internist, it was several months after the original cystonomy. And that's why we've, we've got your Alyssa again back in the bladder.
0: Oh, boy. Well, so he's going to be one of those 50%, huh, that, that recur.
1: We that's talked weird. about
2: it in the last episode. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's frustrating. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> oh, gosh. So what are the typical symptoms of a PSS?
2: Oh, all right. So typically symptoms of a congenital PSS occur within the first six months to two years of life but a few are not detected until later on in life, such as in this patient. The pet may be stunted in growth or fail to gain weight, may fail to thrive. Diarrhea or vomiting may occur intermittently. Affected pets may drink and urinate a lot more often, so PUPD. Toxins in the bloodstream can cause a variety of nervous system symptoms, so some neurologic symptoms that first indicate the presence of this portosystemic shunt. So this is called hepatic encephalopathy. It's a tongue twister there. Yeah, (laughs) you you nailed it. Yeah, Uh Uh, I've been practicing. All right. (laughs) (laughs) These symptoms can include poor appetite, lethargy, disorientation, pacing and circling, seizures, coma, and other changes in behavior. Excessive drooling can also occur jointly with these symptoms and is especially common in cats with portosystemic shunts. So cats can get PSS. These symptoms usually wax and wane. And pets with PSS are also predisposed to the development of uralis. Ta-da! So that's exactly what happened in this case.
0: So patients with an acquired shunt tend to be older and in poor body condition than those with congenital shunts. Patients with intrahepatic shunts, so shunts inside the liver, tend to have a larger volume of blood diverted around the liver than do those with the extrahepatic shunts. So these dogs with intrahepatic shunts typically have more severe clinical signs. Behavioral changes or even prolonged recovery times from anesthesia might occur. Uh, with with either type. Central nervous system, GI, and urinary systems are the most common organ systems affected by portosystemic shunts. And in one study, 82% of dogs with portosystemic shunts had central nervous system signs, 76% had GI signs, and 39% had urinary signs. Patients with congenital shunts tend to have more CNS signs than those with acquired shunts. And then such signs include behavioral changes, pacing, vocalization, head pressing, ataxia, which is kind of like drunk walking, you know, (laughs) circling, muscle tremors, cortical blindness, stupor, seizures, deafness, and ventral neck flexion. So flexing your neck would be like holding your chin to your chest kind of thing. A precipitating event might sort of set off the CNS signs. So like like you're hanging tough and then all of a sudden something comes along and pushes that first domino and they all fall. So things like ingesting a high protein meal, GI bleeds, anesthesia or sedation might kind of be the first thing that tips them over the edge. And then ascites can develop in these guys, but it's more common in dogs that have acquired shunts. So I'm wondering uh looking back did the owners recognize any clinical signs of portosystemic shunts in this dog other than the straining to urinate and his uroliths?
2: Um not really. They had talked about um some GI symptoms. So some some vomiting and maybe some diarrhea, but they didn't other maybe the Occasional serenia and metronidazole, and then he was fine. You know, afterwards. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think they really saw any neurologic signs, from what I could tell about the case. Just mainly GI symptoms, and they just kind of were like, "Meh." Kind yeah. Of thing,
0: and I guess it's always possible that maybe the dog was showing, maybe, or maybe the dog had symptoms, but because he can't talk, <laughs> no one noticed the clinical signs. You know, I guess that's a possibility. <laughs> that's so interesting
2: what may be normal to owners is not normal to us
0: girl that is the damn truth (laughs) i can't even tell i saw a case this weekend where the owner was convinced that the patient was displaying one particular sign but when i'm looking at the patient and the the owner is going like see they're doing it right now i'm like that word does not mean what you think it means like (laughs) this is a different it's a different clinical sign that we're talking about this is not like that's not it's not what we're talking about this is
2: why in internal medicine our appointments are as long as they are Mm
0: -hmm. they They have to be
2: we are asking all of the questions all of it and like i have to call already be like primary care veterinarians back and be like i need more history they're Mm -hmm. like what do you mean more history is a year not enough no no it's not i need everything from since they were born we need it (laughs) all
1: i
0: mean you really do and that you can't really collect that type of in-depth stuff fast like it not with the way that owners are like him and Hohen and it's hard to remember, and they all have a different story, and the couple isn't like on the same page about when this happened or whether it even happened at all. Like it's just it just takes time and patience to sit down and go through all that with them.
2: Absolutely, for sure. and then they can you know give you more history after you've done certain diagnostics, and they tell you something, and you're like, oh my gosh, did we just waste five to six? cupcakes on unnecessary diagnostics when Mm -hmm. this is probably what it is
0: sure yeah Mm. (laughs) if only owners could just be veterinary uh, professionals that would be great (laughs) please do that
2: i hope they have this issue in human (laughs) medicine too
1: (laughs) they do oh girl i'm sure they do oh boy so back to our little dog Mm -hmm. how do you treat a pss
2: Okay, so for this episode, we are going to talk most about the treatment of congenital PSS. Acquired PSS is often managed medically. Medical therapy can also be considered in cases of congenital PSS in which there are mild clinical signs or in which the patient is older. In most cases of congenital portosystemic shunts, the treatment of choice is surgery. Many affected pets will have complete resolution or disappearance of symptoms after systemic shunt is permanently closed during surgery. The shunt cannot always be corrected surgically, however. Some are in locations such as within the liver tissue where they cannot be reached. Others cannot be closed off completely because the blood pressure in the portal system becomes too high. Prior to surgery or in pets that cannot be treated surgically, medications may be adequate to control hepatic encephalopathy for months to years. One of those medications is called lactulose. So this is an ammonia detoxicant. We can do antibiotics such as neomyosin to treat ammonia-producing bacteria within the gastrointestinal system. We can also prescribe anti-seizure medication such as Keppra. Even though they're not displaying neurosymptoms at that time, it's still protocol that we do it because they could have some right before surgery or after surgery. So, we do it anyways. And also, feeding a low protein diet to prevent the breakdown of protein that produces ammonia within the system. After a few weeks of medical management and the patient is stable, surgery can be established using surgical planning. So, the surgical planning that we do through a CT scan, that's also the plus about doing a CT scan, is that they can do surgical planning. The surgeon can determine where the shunt is located and ligate it. I don't think they do it that way, though. I think they use like a like a ring? It
0: depends. There are a few different ways I was reading about, you know, sometimes you can just go in and like tie it off with suture, but there are pros and cons to that approach. And then there are little devices that you can use that kind of gradually constrict over time. One of them is called like a cellophane band, which I didn't fully understand. Like I couldn't picture that, but it's like a thin film and it gradually closes down over time. And one of the benefits of using these gradual occlusive devices is that we can have like fewer problems with like the development of symptoms after surgery, like suddenly now we're seizing after surgery and things like that, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. So there might be fewer like just symptoms in general. Now Unfortunately, one potential outcome of surgery is that you can have hypertension in the portal vein, and then they might ultimately develop acquired shunts, like even after their surgery. Sometimes, depending on the individual patient, you might not even be able to tie the whole shunt off. Sometimes you just partially occlude it, but then that gives like enough improvement for them to kind of go about their life. So. I would say most of the people listening to this podcast are not going to be doing shunt surgery. So I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) say that that is where we'll leave that conversation about the different types. (laughs) If you find yourself doing surgery on a portosystemic shunt, please read multiple surgical texts before you do that.
2: Yeah. And
0: do not rely on this brief description.
2: Yeah, leave it it to the (laughs) specialist. (laughs) Oh, boy. There are
1: several different types of extrahepatic shunts. What are some of those? All
2: right, there's six main types. There's there's more than six, but these are the main types. I'm not going to be able to say all of them correctly, so bear you, with me. You got this. <laughs> so uh, the first one is called spleno Splenocaval.
0: I would. Cable. Like yeah, vena C- cava.
2: I have Henry Cavill on my mind. Okay.
0: Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> so I would say cable. All
2: right, splenocable. So this is arising from the splenic vein and terminating in the caudal vena cava at the level of the right kidney caudal to the liver. So it's a lot of anatomy. So hopefully you get that.
0: Yeah, p- you can visualize it, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the second type is the one that this case, this particular patient has a splenophrenic. This is arising from the splenic vein and terminating in the vena cava. And this is cranial to the liver. The third is the splenic azygous, arising from the splenic vein and terminating in the azygus vein. Fourth is gastric cable, extends ventrally leftward, And caudally along the lesser curvature of the stomach, inserting on the caudal vena cava from the left side. Fifth is the right gastric ozygous with caudal loop arising from the gastroduodenal vein and terminating in the ozygous vein. And last, right gastric caval shunt with a caudal loop. So this is a double shunting confirmation with two anastomosing shunting loops.
0: Okay. Potential surgical complications. We, you know, chanted about this like just superficially uh, just a minute ago. but So you might have postoperative complications, including portal vein hypertension, persistent shunts. So you didn't get it fully closed or it opened back up again. You might have new neurologic abnormalities and the new development of seizures. Risk factors for worsening neurologic signs include any sort of preoperative hepatic encephalopathy signs and patients who are older in age when they're diagnosed. And then signs of acute portal hypertension that we need to look out for are vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal distension, abdominal pain, progressive ascites, so fluid in the belly,
1: hypotension, and shock. So what is the prognosis and ongoing management of these patients?
2: Successful surgical treatment of congenital portosystemic shuns can lead to the pet living a completely normal life. Without surgery, some dogs can be managed with medication alone for months to years, while in others, the medication is not sufficient to control the problem cats are less likely to have their symptoms controlled by medication alone. When portosystemic shunts first arise later in life, so these acquired portosystemic shunts, they do so as a result of chronic liver disease such as cirrhosis. In such cases, surgical closure of the shunts is not performed, and the priority rests on the treatment of the underlying problem, usually with medications chosen based on a liver biopsy result.
0: As far as prognosis goes... Approximately 33% of patients with portosystemic shunts can be managed with medical therapy alone. The older the animal is at the onset of clinical signs, the longer their survival tends to be with medical therapy alone. Of dogs treated medically, 50% are euthanized within 10 months of diagnosis because of persistent signs of hepatic encephalopathy or progressive hepatic fibrosis. In one study of 126 dogs with a single-vessel portosystemic shunt, survival time was significantly longer in surgically treated pets compared to those treated medically. After 1,500 days, how many years is that?
2: It's a Ooh. lot. Hold on, I mean, 15 divided by 30. Five?
0: Five Less years? Less than
2: five. Less than five okay. years.
0: Four to five years? Yeah. Okay, sounds good. I trust you. I
2: hope. I <laughs> hope look, I'm going to pull up. I'll take it out
0: in editing if it's not right. You mad. After the 1500 day mark, 90% of surgically treated patients were still alive. That's compared to only 63% of medically treated patients. In dogs that have intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, mortality rates can be as high as 27% after surgical attenuation, but generally they have good outcomes. 50% of the time, at least, there was one study that had 100% of surgical survivors with excellent outcomes. So 50 to 100% of the time, the survivors of the surgery do really well. Dogs with intrahepatic portosystemic shunts also have higher incidence of GI ulceration and bleeding, so the long-term use of antacids might be needed. And then preoperative low albumin preoperative elevated white blood cells, and postoperative development of seizures and evidence of persistent shunting at 6 to 10 weeks after surgery are all considered to be poor long-term outcome predictors for both intrahepatic and extrahepatic
1: shunts. So what happened with our patient?
2: So the patient was prescribed Kepra, Neomycin, and Lactulose. One month later, the patient had um, a PSS surgery, and it was successfully ligated. They ended up using a five millimeter amyloid constrictor. So this is probably the constrictor that Dr. Greider was talking about earlier. A liver biopsy was performed and a cystotomy was performed to remove the uroliths. Uh, the patient recovered uneventfully from the procedure and was discharged the next day. He did really well. The liver biopsy was consistent with PSS. And the urolith analysis results were 100% ammonium urate stones. Surprise, surprise. The patient was slowly tapered off of the lactulose and the capra and the neomycin over the next several months post-surgery. And his liver enzymes were rechecked every two to four weeks to make sure that progress was being made. The patient came in for his liver enzyme rechecks and they had noted that it wasn't improving the way that they would like to see it. And they had noted in its chemistry profile that it had some high cholesterol. Sometimes if we have high cholesterol or triglycerides, that can cause some elevated liver enzymes as well. So the patient was prescribed walactolin, which is an omega-3 fatty acid to help lower the cholesterol. It helped a little bit, but not really much. They did what they called a lipid panel. And that had noted some differences in in cholesterol, HDL, LDL. um, And the patient was prescribed gym from Brazil. So this uh, helps with cholesterol. After they started that, liver enzymes were way better four weeks later, way better. Cholesterol was actually within normal limits. Fantastic. And all of the liver enzymes were within normal limits. The patient was doing really well, gaining weight because I guess it lost a little bit of weight after the procedure. And now it's living its best miniature schnauzer
0: life oh, oh my goodness <laughs> yeah so um that sounds like that schnauzer might have also just had like a bad genetic dice roll and also had the hyperlipidemia of schnauzers too well i mean this <laughs> is familial. why we,
2: right this is why we check liver enzymes right because there's multiple things that can cause like bile acids to be elevated and whatever well one of them was a the pss who's to say that triglycerides like higher cholesterol was also not the problem too. This is why yep. we check it, make sure it's improving. Cause the last thing that we need is cirrhosis of the liver or any sort of liver disease after mm-hmm. what this dog has been through.
0: That's true. Wow. That's a great case. Elena, thank you so much for bringing this one for us.
2: Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites to work up for sure. Very informative.
0: <laughs> well, we have a super long list of sources for today. And since we're already like kind of over time, I'm not actually going to read them all, but just know that there were many sources and we're going to put them in the show notes as always and also on social media. So if you have any questions about the information that was presented today, be sure to check those out or you can always reach out to us as well. If you have stories, cases, questions, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast
1: at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And it's at introverts. And don't forget to rate,
0: review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yep, yep. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.